Hello again. I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. So good to have you along. Tonight, the third and final installment of Willa Cather's Tom Outland story from her 1925 novel, The Professor's House. Our story is the centerpiece of the larger novel. The story is being told to the professor of the book's title, the man who became the brilliant and idealistic young man's academic mentor and friend. Last time, we followed Tom on his trip to Washington, D.C., to seek support in investigating the amazing discovery in New Mexico of an ancient and perfectly preserved cliff village cut off from the world by centuries. His attempts to engage with the offices in Washington and with the Smithsonian Institution ended in complete frustration and disappointment with all these offices. We join him now as he returns to the Southwest and his fellow explorer, Rodney Blake. Chapter 6 Continued I was terribly disappointed when I got off the train at Tarpon and Roddy wasn't at the station to meet me. It was late in the afternoon, almost dark, and I went straight to the livery stable to ask Bill Hook for news of Blake. Hook, you remember, had done all our hauling for us and had been a good friend. He gave me a glad hand and said Blake was out on the mesa. I expect maybe he's had his feelings hurt here. He's been shy of this town lately. You see, Tom, folks weren't bothered none about that mesa so long as you fellows were playing Robinson Crusoe out there digging up curios. But when it leaked out that Blake had got a lot of money for your stuff, then they begun to feel jealous, said them ruins didn't belong to Blake any more than anybody else. It'll blow over in time. People are always like that when money changes hands. But right now there's a good deal of bad feeling. I told him I didn't know what he was talking about. You mean you ain't heard about the German, Fechtig? Well, Rodney's got some surprise waiting for you. Why, he's had the damnedest luck. He cleaned up a neat little pile on your stuff. I begged him to tell me what stuff he meant. Why, you're curios. This German, Fechtig, come along. He'd been buying up a lot of Indian things out here, and he bought your whole outfit and paid $4,000 down for it. The transaction made quite a stir here in Tarpon. I'm not kicking. I made a good thing out of it. My mules were busy three weeks packing the stuff out there on their backs, and I held the Dutchman up for a fancy price. He had packing cases made at the wagon shop and took them up to the mesa full of straw and sawdust and packed the curios out there. I lost one of my mules, too. You remember Jenny? Well, they were leading her down with a big box on her, and right there where the trail runs so narrow around a bump in the cliff above Black Canyon, she lost her balance and fell clean to the bottom, her load on her. Pretty near a thousand feet, I guess. We never went down to hold a post-mortem, but Fechtig paid for her like a gentleman. I remember I sat down on the sofa in Hook's office because I couldn't stand up any longer, and the smell of the horse blankets began to make me deathly sick. In a minute I went over like a girl in a novel. Hook pulled me out on the sidewalk and gave me some whiskey out of his pocket flask. When I felt better, I asked him how long this German had been gone and what he had done with the things. Oh, he cleared out three weeks ago. He didn't waste no time. He treated everybody well, though. Nobody's sore at him. It's your partner they're turned against. Fechtig took the stuff right along with him, chartered a freight car, and traveled in the car with it. I reckon it's on the water by now. He took it straight through into old Mexico and was to load it on a French boat. 
Seems he was having trouble getting curiosities out of the United States ports. You know, you can take anything out of the city of Mexico. I had heard all I wanted to hear. I went to the hotel, got a room, and lay down without undressing to wait for daylight. Hook was to drive me and my trunk out to the mesa early the next morning. All I'd been through in Washington was nothing to what I went through that night. I thought Blake must have lost his mind. I didn't for a moment believe he'd meant to sell me out. But I cursed his stupidity and presumption. I'd never told him just how I felt about those things we'd dug out together. It was the kind of thing one doesn't talk about directly. But he must have known. He couldn't have lived with me all summer and fall without knowing. And yet, until that night, I had never known myself that I cared more about them than about anything else in the world. At the first blink of daylight, I jumped up from my damnable bed and went round to the stable to rout Hook out of his bunk. We had breakfast and got out of town with his best team. On the way to the mesa we had a breakdown. One of the old dry wheels smashed to splinters. Hook had one hitch and ride back to Tarpon and get another. Everything took an unreasonably long time, and the afternoon was half gone when he put me and my trunk down at the foot of the Black Canyon Trail. Every inch of that trail was dear to me, every delicate curve about the old pinion roots, every chancy track along the face of the cliffs, and the deep windings back into the shrubbery and safety. The wild currant bushes were in bloom, and where the path climbed the side of a narrow ravine, the scent of them in the sun was so heavy that it made me soft, made me want to lie down and sleep. I wanted to see and touch everything, like homesick children when they come home. When I pulled out on top of the mesa, the rays of sunlight fell slantingly through the little twisted pinions. The light was all in between them, as red as a daylight fire. They fairly swam in it, once again I had that glorious feeling that I'd never had anywhere else, the feeling of being on Mesa, in a world above the world. And the air, my God, what air! Soft, tingling, gold, hot with an edge of chill on it, full of the smell of pinions. It was like breathing the sun, breathing the color of the air. Down there behind me was the plain, already streaked with shadow, violet and purple and burnt orange until it met the horizon. Before me was the flat mesa top, thinly sprinkled with old cedars that were not much taller than I, though their twisted trunks were almost as thick as my body. I struck off across it, my long black shadow going ahead. I made straight for the cabin. It was about three miles from the spot where the trail emerged at the top. I saw smoke rising before I could see the hut itself, Blake was in the doorway when I got there. I didn't look at his face, but I could feel that he looked at mine. "'Don't say anything, Tom. Don't rip me up until you hear all about it,' he said as I came toward him. "'I've heard enough to about do for me,' I blurted out. "'What made you do it, Blake? What made you do it?' "'It was a chance in a million, boy. There wasn't any time to consult you. There's only one man in thousands that wants to buy relics and pay real money for them.' I could see how your Washington campaign was coming out. I know you'd thought about big figures, so had I. But that was all a pipe dream. Four thousand's not so bad. You don't pick it up every day. And he bore all the expenses. Why, it was a terrible expensive job getting all that frail stuff out of here. Who else would have bought it, I want to know? 
We'd have to pack it around at Harvey houses, selling it at a dollar a bowl like the poor Indians do. I took the best chance going for both of us, Tom. I didn't say anything because there was too much to say. I stood outside the cabin until the gold light went blue and a few stars came out, hardly brighter than the bright sky they twinkled in, and the swallows came flying over us on their way to nests in the cliff. It was the time of day when everything goes home. From habit and from weariness, I went in through the door. The kitchen table was spread for dinner. I could smell a rabbit stew cooking on the stove. Blake lit the lantern and begged me to eat my supper. I didn't go into the bunk room, for I knew the shelves in there were empty. I heard Blake talking to me as you hear people talking when you are asleep. Who else would have bought them? He kept saying. Folks make a lot of fuss over such things, but they don't want to pay good money for them. When I at last told him that such a thing as selling them had never entered my head, I'm sure he thought I was lying. He reminded me about how we used to talk of getting big money from the government. I admitted I'd hoped we'd be paid for our work, and maybe a bonus of some kind for our discovery. But I never thought of selling them because they weren't mine to sell, nor yours. They belong to this country, to the state, and to all the people. They belong to boys like you and me that have no other ancestors to inherit from. You've gone and sold them to a country that's got plenty of relics of its own. You've gone and sold your country's secrets like Dreyfus. That man was innocent. It was a frame-up, Blake murmured. It was a point he would never pass up. Whether he's guilty or not, you are. If there was only anybody in Washington I could telegraph to and have that German held up at the port. That's just it. If there was anybody in Washington that cared a damn, I wouldn't have sold them. But you pretty well found out there ain't. We could have kept them then, I told him. I've got a strong back. I'm not so poor that I have to sell the pots and pans that belonged to my poor grandmothers a thousand years ago. I made all my plans on the train coming back. It was a lie. I hadn't. I meant to get a job on the railroad and keep our find right here and come back to it when I had a layoff. I think a lot more of it now than before I went to Washington. And after a while, when that exposition is over and the Smithsonian people get home, they would come out here all right. I've learned enough from them so that I could go on with it myself. Blake reminded me that I had my way to make in the world and that I wanted to go to school. That money's in the bank this minute in your name and you're going to college on it. You're not going to be a day laborer like me. After you've got your sheepskin, then you can divide with me. You think I'd touch that money? I looked squarely at him for the first time. No more than if you'd stolen it. You made the sale. Get what you can out of it. I want to ask you one question. Did you ever think I was digging those things up for what I could sell them for? Rodney explained that he knew I cared about the things and was proud of them, but he'd always supposed I meant to realize on them, just as he did, and that it would come to money in the end. Everything does, he added. If that nice young Frenchman I met had come down here with me and offered me four million instead of four thousand, I would have refused him. There never was any question of money with me where this Mesa and its people were concerned. They were something that had been preserved through the ages by a miracle and handed on to you and me, two poor cowpunchers, rough and ignorant. But I thought we were men enough to keep a trust. I'd as soon have sold my own grandmother as Mother Eve. I'd have sold any living woman first. Save your tears, said Roddy grimly. 
She refused to leave us. She went to the bottom of Black Canyon and carried Hook's best mule along with her. They had to make her box extra wide, and she crowded Jenny out an inch or so too far from the canyon wall. The painful interview went on for hours. I walked up and down the kitchen, trying to make Blake understand the kind of value those objects had had for me. Unfortunately, I succeeded. He sat slumping on the bench, his elbows on the table, shading his eyes from the lantern with his hands. "'There's no need to keep this up,' he said at last. "'You're a way out of my depth, but I think I get you. You might have given me some of this Fourth of July talk a little earlier in the game. I didn't know you valued that stuff any different than anything else a fellow might run on to, a gold mine or a pocket of turquoise. I suppose you gave him my diary along with the rest.' "'No,' said Blake, his voice growing gloomier and darker. "'That's in the eagle's nest where you hid it. "'That's your private property. "'I suppose I had some share in the relics we dug. "'You always spoke of it that way. "'But I see now I was working for you like a hired man, "'and while you were away I sold your property. "'I said again it wasn't mine or his.' "'He took something out of the pocket of his flannel shirt "'and laid it on the table. "'I saw it was a bank passbook with my name on the yellow cover. "'You may as well keep it,' I said. "'I'll never touch it. "'You had no right to deposit it in my name. "'The townspeople are sore about the money, "'and they'll hold it against me.' "'No, they won't. "'Can't you trust me to fix that?' "'I don't know what I can trust you with, Blake. "'I don't know where I'm at with you,' I said. "'He got up and began putting on his coat. "'Motives don't count, eh?' he said. "'His face turned away as he put his arm into the sleeve.' They would in anything of our own between you and me, I told him. If it was my money you'd lost gambling or my girl you'd made free with, we could fight it out and maybe be friends again. But this is different. I see. You make it clear. He was quietly stirring around as he spoke. He got his old knapsack off its nail on the wall, opened his trunk, and took out some underwear and socks and a couple of shirts. After he had put these into the bag, he slung it over one shoulder and his canvas water-bag over the other. I let these preparations go on without a word. He went to the cupboard over the stove and put some sticks of chocolate into his pocket, then his pipe and a bag of tobacco. Presently I said he'd break his neck if he tried riding down the trail in the dark. "'I'm not riding the trail,' he replied curtly. "'I'm going down the quick way. My horse is grazing in Cow Canyon.' "'I noticed the river's high. It's dangerous crossing,' I remarked." I got over that way a few days ago. I'm surprised at you, using such common expressions, he said sarcastically. Dangerous crossing. It's painted on signboards all over the world. He walked out of the cabin without looking back. I followed him to the V-shaped break in the rim rock, hardly larger than a man's body, where the spliced tree trunks made a swinging ladder down the face of the cliff. I wanted to protest, but only succeeded in finding fault. "'You'll catch your knapsack on those forks and come to grief. "'That's my lookout.' "'By the time my eyes had grown accustomed to the darkness, "'I could see Blake quite clearly. "'The stubborn, crouching set of his shoulders "'that I used to notice when he first came to Pardee "'and was drinking all the time. "'There was an ache in my arms to reach out and detain him, "'but there was something else that made me absolutely powerless to do so. "'He stepped down and settled his foot into the first fork. "'Then he stopped a moment.' and straightened his back, buttoned his coat up to the chin, and pulled his hat on tighter. There was always a night draft in the canyon, 
He gripped the trunk with his hands. Well, he said with grim cheerfulness, here's luck. And I'm glad it's you that's doing this to me, Tom, not me that's doing it to you. His head disappeared below the rim. I could hear the trees creak under his heavy body and the chains rattle a little at the splicings. I lay down on the ledge and listened. I could hear him for a long way down, and the sounds were comforting to me, though I didn't realize it. Then the silence closed in. I went to sleep that night, hoping I would never waken. Chapter 7 The next morning, the whinnying of my saddle-horse in the shed roused me. I took him down to the foot of the trail where I'd left my trunk and packed my things up to the cabin on his back. I sat up late that night, waiting for Blake, though I knew he wouldn't come. A few days later I rode into Tarpon for news of him. Bill Hook showed me Roddy's horse. He had sold him to the barn for sixty dollars. The stationmaster told me Blake had bought a ticket to Winslow, Arizona. I wired the stationmaster and the dispatcher at Winslow, but they could give me no information. Father Duchesne came along on his rounds, and I told him the whole story. He thought Blake would come back sometime, that I'd only miss him if I went out to look for him. He advised me to stay on the mesa that summer and get ahead with my studies, work up my Spanish grammar and my Latin. He had friends all along the Santa Fe, and he was sure we could catch Blake by advertising in the local papers along the road. Albuquerque, Winslow, Flagstaff, Williams, Los Angeles. After a few days with him, I went back to the mesa to wait. I'll never forget the night I got back. I crossed the river an hour before sunset and hobbled my horse in the wide bottom of the Cow Canyon. The moon was up, though the sun hadn't set, and it had that glittering silveriness the early stars have in high latitudes. The heavenly bodies look so much more remote from the bottom of a deep canyon than they do from the level. The climb of the walls helps out the eye somehow. I lay down on a solitary rock that was like an island in the bottom of the valley and looked up. The gray sagebrush and the blue-gray rock around me were already in shadow, but high above me the canyon walls were dyed flame-color with the sunset, and the cliff city lay in a golden haze against its dark cavern. In a few minutes it too was gray, and only the rim-rock at the top held the red light. When that was gone I could still see the copper glow in the pinions along the edge of the top ledges. The arc of the sky over the canyon was silvery blue, with its pale yellow moon, and presently stars shivered into it like crystals dropped into perfectly clear water. I remember these things because, in a sense, that was the first night I was ever really on the mesa at all, the first night that all of me was there. This was the first time I ever saw it as a whole. It all came together in my understanding, as a series of experiments do when you begin to see where they are leading. Something had happened in me that made it possible for me to coordinate and simplify, and that process, going on in my mind, brought with it great happiness. It was possession. The excitement of my first discovery was a very pale feeling compared to this one. For me the mesa was no longer an adventure, but a religious emotion. I had read of filial piety in the Latin poets, and I knew that was what I felt for this place. It had formerly been mixed up with other motives, but now that they were gone, 
I had my happiness unalloyed. What that night began lasted all summer. I stayed on the mesa until November. It was the first time I'd ever studied methodically or intelligently. I got the best of the Spanish grammar and read the twelve books of the Aeneid. I studied in the morning, and in the afternoon I worked at clearing away the mess the German had made in packing, tidying up the ruins to wait another hundred years, maybe, for the right explorer. I can scarcely hope that life will give me another summer like that one. It was my high tide. Every morning, when the sun's rays first hit the mesa top, while the rest of the world was in shadow, I awakened with the feeling that I had found everything instead of having lost everything. Nothing tired me. Up there alone, a close neighbor to the sun, I seemed to get the solar energy in some direct way, and at night, when I watched it drop down behind the edge of the plain below me, I used to feel that I couldn't have borne another hour of that consuming light, that I was full to the brim and needed dark and sleep. All that summer I never went up to the eagle's nest to get my diary. Indeed, it's probably there yet. I didn't feel the need of that record. It would have been going backward. I didn't want to go back and unravel things step by step. Perhaps I was afraid that I would lose the whole in the parts. At any rate, I didn't go for my record. During those months, I didn't worry much about poor Roddy. I told myself the advertisements would surely get him. I knew his habit of reading newspapers. There are times when one's vitality is too high to be clouded, too elastic to stay down. Hurrying from my cabin in the morning to the spot in the Cliff City where I studied under a cedar, I used to be frightened at my own heartlessness, but the feel of the narrow moccasin-worn trail in the flat rock made me feel glad, like a good taste in the mouth, and I'd forget all about Blake without knowing it. I found I was reading too fast, so I began to commit long passage of Virgil to memory. If it hadn't been for that, I might have forgotten how to use my voice or gone to talking to myself. When I look into the Aeneid now, I can always see two pictures, the one on the page and another behind that, blue and purple rocks and yellow-green pinions with flat tops, little clustered houses clinging together for protection, a rude tower rising in their midst, rising strong with calmness and courage, behind it a dark grotto, in its depths a crystal spring. Happiness is something one can't explain. You must take my word for it. Troubles enough came afterward, but there was that summer, high and blue, a life in itself. Next winter I went to Pardee and stayed with the O'Briens again, working on the section and studying with Father Duchesne and trying to get some word of Blake. Now that I was back on the railroad, I thought I couldn't fail to find him. I went out to Winslow and to Williams, and I questioned the railroad men. We advertised him in every possible way, had all the Santa Fe operatives and the police and the Catholic ministers on the watch for him, offered a thousand dollars reward for whoever found him, but it came to nothing. Father Duchesne and our friends down there are still looking, but the older I grow, the more I understand what it was I did that night on the mesa. Anyone who requites faith and friendship as I did will have to pay for it. I'm not very sanguine about good fortune for myself. I'll be called to account when I least expect it. In the spring, 
just a year after I quarreled with Roddy, I landed here and walked into your garden. And the rest you know. You've been listening to Tom Outland's story from Willa Cather's novel, The Professor's House. I learned that Willa Cather wrote Tom Outland's story first, and only later did she write the framing story about the professor and his family. If you've enjoyed Tom Outland's story, you might find it worth your while to check out the entire novel. I find Cather's writing extraordinary, and have enjoyed reacquainting myself with her work. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy. All the best. Thank you.